All right, guys, we are continuing our study in marriage today. I was actually lamenting to Jeremy a bit this morning, and he diagnosed my problem perfectly. He called it analysis paralysis. <laughs> um, in some sense, that's a bad thing because there's a lot to there's a lot to distill in studying marriage and wanting to get you guys good material. And I would readily admit I do stand on the shoulders of giants. There's just been a lot of other than the scriptures themselves been exposed to a lot of really good stuff, a lot of really good books and lectures and and sermons and things of that nature that have that have helped me uh, land my plane on some of these issues and I think ha- have something that is that will be valuable and applicable uh, to each and every one of you, especially if you're married. So yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. It's a lot to distill. It's a lot to kind of bring down. That's the hard part. But once again, the blessing is that this stuff is out there and is accessible. And so uh, I will do my best to try to uh, enumerate those truths to you. We probably have several scriptures this morning to uh, attend to, and I think next Lord's Day we will focus on one in particular to see uh, an example of the teaching we are, uh, we are reviewing uh, this morning. So again, just be in prayer as, as the, the Lord's Word comes to bear uh, on each of you this morning. Um, Few things that I can commend to you, just uh, honor to whom honors do. Want to give credit to my sources up front in case I get into the thick of it and forget to do so. But as you know, been going through Reforming Marriage by Doug Wilson. It's been extremely helpful. Um, his uh, work, uh, Marriage as a Glory and a Covering. Uh, he writes a lot about glory uh, when it comes to marriage. Uh, Toby Sumter, No Mere Mortals, are very, very helpful uh, uh, lectures on this subject. So if I say anything that is especially profound this morning, it's probably not original, um, which is humbling to admit. So with that, um, we're going to get into the theme today of reforming marriage, wives, submission, and respect. Uh, and we'll be jumping through quite a bit of scriptures today. But just to, to begin, if you want to write these scriptures down, they will be very similar to the ones that we went over in regards to Husbands loving their wives. Okay, we see the enormous responsibility of loving, especially sacrificially, but all that comes with that. Uh, we see that in Colossians chapter three. So we'll be in that chapter. We will be in First uh, Peter chapter three as well, and then of course Ephesians five. And each of these passages talks about not only the duties of the man to his wife and the wife to her man, but also how they are exemplified in Christ. And I think also that is important that we're going to start getting into is how those relationships relate to one another. Uh, It's good to remind ourselves that our various duties, whether as husbands or wives, do not exist in a vacuum. There is something that we call call a dynamic. We'll get into a little bit of that today. They don't simply exist side by side. They exist with one another and in one another and for one another. And so we want to actually be able to appreciate what God's Word says about what a, what a husband's love looks like and how that impacts his wife's submission. And of course, what does a wife's submission say about her husband's love? And so we want to cover as much of that as we can today. And last Lord's Day, we really tried to center on what it means to be a woman, and specifically what it means to be a wife. And we can't say what a wife is until we actually understand what a woman is. And of course, we talked about how complicated of an issue that seems to be today. 
is simply answering the question, what is a woman? And there seems to be so so much confusion uh, regarding something that for, for the last several thousand years of, of human history has been a relative, had a relatively simple answer. We know what a woman is. But of course, it also tells us that we need an abiding absolute standard. As soon as we abandon a particular standard, one standard has to pop up in its place. And of course, for the Christian uh, to guard himself against that, we go to the only standard that we know of, the only absolute and final standard that we know of, and that is God's Word, the Holy Scriptures. God's Word tells us plainly what a woman is and what her and what her design is, what her roles are. And when we look in Scripture, we see something much wider than simply the combination of two X chromosomes. We don't want to get caught too easily into thinking that a woman is merely biological, even though there are biological features that indicate what a woman is that much of the human race seems to have conveniently deviated from. That is, if you feel like you're a woman then, well, you are a woman, and who's who to say otherwise, right? Who's who to oppress you like that? And of course, we would say only a biological woman can be, a bio- can be an actual woman. Scripture tells us so. One cannot be a woman simply because they feel like a woman or identify themselves as a woman. We find in our study of Scripture that based on its revelation, a woman is also identified by her relationship to the man. Hence, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. Try as one might, you cannot divide the reality of that. A woman is identified by her relationship to the man, the man's relationship to her, in addition to her purpose and function in the world. And we went over that last Lord's Day. And all of these things put together matter, and all of them are significant to creation, as well as, and especially, in regards to God's ongoing redemptive work in that creation. We have to remember, and this is very important, we say, what does this have to do with the gospel? Everything to do with the gospel. Because the creation mandate has has been upgraded. It's taken on an entirely new and exalted flavor that the man and his wife in taking dominion together are tasked with the spread of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Scripture progresses, we see that meta-narrative take shape with stunning clarity. The creation mandate never went away. We are involved in it in a new and living way that Adam was not accustomed to. That is, through the gospel, the Lord is ushering in a new heavens and new earth, where, as, for, as Peter says, where righteousness dwells. It will be characterized at, with by righteousness. So the man and his wife, as they partner together, are joining in a righteous work, the pursuit of righteousness, where all things will eventually be subject to Christ, and we do that together in the power of His Spirit. But of course, that requires us to be obedient to particular commands and roles that God has assigned for us. And I think these roles are very clear. And going back to the identity of the woman, just by way of review, we've expressed them in four ways. So just as the man has expressed his headship by love, so does the woman express her station as helpmeet in the terms of goodness, a gift, a garden, and glory. And she does all of these through submission. That's the key word. Submission. 
Of course, we want to do this without talking about it in isolation. The primary intent is to understand God's design for women in the blessed context of marriage. And it's such a relief that even standing up here that I really do believe that I am surrounded by a body of believers who really do treasure their marriages. Right? And I'd like to do what I can to help you uphold that. I, 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 know I can say that a lot of you men in here really cherish and love your wives. You've kept your vows. You, are, you, you, you love her well and you love your kids well. And we want to do whatever we can together as a church to continue to sustain that, to continue to, continue to cherish it. And of course, we, I think it's necessary to repeat that uh, the numerous difficulties that um, prevail upon womanhood today. The beauty of a woman is despised. Biblical femininity is something that is despised and often rejected. Even to the point where the fertility of a woman is despised. We talked about last Lord's Day, women, what it means to be a woman is being defaced. And we liken this identity to a sandcastle being hit by wave after wave. We talked about, of course, the four waves of feminism. And what has happened is that because of this onslaught of an anti-gospel, anti-biblical feminism, womanhood and what it means to be a woman has all but disappeared. That's what feminism has done. These four waves, they deface women to the point to suppress all that makes them distinct, beautiful, and glorious. And of course, we could say the waves are not the only problem. The biggest problem is that we took it upon ourselves to build with sand in the first place. That's the real problem. We're building with ungodly materials. We are constructing our view of humanity, both men and women alike, in our roles in creation without Scripture. That's where we always go wrong. And so we see as time has progressed, especially in the last century, how we've, in a sense, lost our identity. And this has taken its toll on women. I was doing a little bit of research and turns out that the average age of marriage for people today is somewhere around 31. I think the, the lowest number I found was 28, depending on who you consult. And of course, one of the reasons, and this is ironic, is that people are taking longer to find themselves. Whatever on earth that means, it's taking a longer time for people to find out who they are. Remember, one of the narratives that's constantly being pushed on both men and women today is this issue of finding ourselves and of this issue of being true to ourselves rather than being honest with ourselves about who we are before the living God. And then, of course, being true to God because that's where it begins. So we obviously have a problem here. That the issue isn't glorifying God, living for Him, trusting in Him, obeying Him, whether man or woman, it's finding ourselves. And it's ironic, of course, because as time goes on, men and women both are losing themselves. And in losing ourselves, we learn also to despise ourselves. And I think this has happened to women especially. And so, in recovering biblical womanhood, especially as it pertains to a wife, we've already covered what it means to be a woman and the various capacities that she fills. Today I want to look at how this is expressed, and that is submission. Of course, submission, even amongst evangelicals, has become somewhat of a four-letter word. It's a bad word. It's actually a ten-letter word, submission. But it has become somewhat offensive, uh, met with eye rolls, even among what we would uh, consider to be 
conservative evangelicals. Submission calls all kinds of questions into the roles of women. And it's something, of course, and I think the age of marriage today is demonstrating that, that women are not going for submission. It is not a particularly attractive option. We also talked about how women are constantly told that being a wife and a mother is, is, is something that is, in a sense, that they're letting themselves down. It prevents them from achieving their highest aspiration, goals, and dreams. They're encouraged to get a career. They're encouraged, under whatever terms, to, to be all that they can be as if being a wife and a mother and supporting a man in his exercising of dominion is somehow relegated to a second-class operation. She's told to be, again, a career woman, wealthy, independent, autonomous, the boss babe. Maybe some of you have heard the term. It's a really interesting term, slay queen. That has come up. That is weird, and that is perverse. <laughs> like, what does that even mean? But, but what's most troubling is the autonomy. And men are encouraged this way as well, but I think this is something, this is a mindset that is particularly, and especially in the last 10 years, taken women captive. Especially sexually. They are encouraged to do what, what men have made a habit of doing. Dating around, sleeping around, engaging in all kinds of sexual escapades. And then, of course, finally, they meet that special someone in their late 20s, they're finally willing to settle down with them as if they can sort of flip off this switch of sexual sin and indiscretion and be faithful to one woman. And of course, I think women are not only doing the same, but they're encouraged to do the same. If men can do this, why can't we? Why shouldn't we? So, of course, women are encouraged to go for the gusto, to be sexually liberated, to be economically liberated, and of course, this is all coming from a pagan worldview on what it means to be a woman. And as much as we keep asking ourselves by what standard, it seems to be a mystery. It's really an autonomous standard. It goes back to whatever you want to do, do it. Do what feels good. Do what feels right. Don't let anyone get in the way of your desires and your goals. It doesn't matter what Scripture says, even if your goals are ungodly goals. It all comes down to what you want in life, and don't let anyone, especially not a man or children, get in the way. And so that's the philosophy the church has to confront today. And the church has to return, repent from any kind of uh, adherence to those views and return to the authority of Scripture. We have to return to God's Word. And so, in beginning... We have a few texts we want to go to. Of course, if you want to open up to Colossians, we'll start in Colossians just so these passages are, are fresh and many of them say the same thing. There is some overlap. But we want to understand what submission means. And by the way, we're going to break this down into four particular categories. Some are longer than others. But first, we have the duty of submission. We have the dynamic of submission. We have the details of submission. And then, of course, we have the difficulties of submission. Yes, Submission is not easy. Sometimes, conversely, loving is not easy. And yet we see the inherent goodness in it because God commands us to do it. We have to understand, friends, that whether loving is the primary duty or submission is the primary duty, it is all part of God's design 
for his people. It is how he advances, one of the ways he advances his kingdom. So we have to start seeing these things as inherently good, especially submission. Not a lot of people have a problem with love. People have a lot of problems with submission. And yet I think we'll find just a short uh, jaunt through some of these passages that submission is perfectly normal. And of course, some of these things will overlap. So let's talk about this first. First is the duty of submission. So to understand submission, we have to first understand that it is a command from God. It is simply part of His instruction for married persons. So, so, so women, this, this is especially for you. I'll have more for you than I did last, uh, last sermon. But this is especially for you because God calls you to exercise submission to the headship of your husband. And so there's a variety of ways in which this is described. We read this first in Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 18. It simply says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then, of course, you read in verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. So here we see this word, be subject. Submit. From the word hupotasso, that is to place under. This, of course, is a military term. It means to rank under. And of course, this ranking under is voluntary. It is voluntary. It means to subject oneself to authority or rule. And of course, in this context, it is the authority or rule of the wife's husband. This same word, keep in mind, is used in 1 Corinthians 15, where it describes Christ subjecting all things to himself. So even subjection or submission is universal in scope. It's happening everywhere. We'll get into some some of those details eventually. Paul talks about it in church life. In 1 Timothy 2, 11-12, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So he says, entire submissiveness. So there is a temptation for the woman to compartmentalize submissiveness. Where she asks, okay, I have to submit to my husband in this, but where, where can I get away with it, right? Where, where are some of the quid pro quos? Where can I write off some of these things? Where does it not apply? But it says entire submissiveness. And from there, he comes to that conclusion, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And Paul will go on to, to explain in, in his, in his writings, that the reason this is so is because, because man was created first and then the woman, then that creates the entire basis of submission. But this is a submission, a willful, complete submission to her husband's authority. And then Colossians goes on to say, as is fitting in the Lord. It's fitting. It's according to design. It's appropriate. It's how things should be. It's not something that we should second guess or, or question ourselves out of. It is fitting in the Lord. This is how the Lord sees it. It's what is expected. And so as Christians, we should have our hearts naturally oriented toward this order. It is fitting. Then, of course, we go to Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 23. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. So you see the same, similar wording here. To your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. 
So Ephesians uses that, that, that similar word. But there is subjection to your own husbands. And don't miss that. We'll probably talk about this again next Lord's Day. But your own. There is, there is ownership. There is possession. Right? Completely consistent with what Scripture says in terms of the relationship between the man and his wife. That the man is not his own, but belongs to his wife. The woman is not her own, but belongs to her husband. And so there is ownership here. There is a cherishing here. Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. We read also in 1 Peter. If you want to turn there very quickly, 1 Peter 3. So some of these texts should be familiar to you. In the opening verse, it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful, respectful behavior. Very clear. And we'll unpack that more in time. But go down to verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So the key word there, of course, is to obey. That's how Sarah honored her husband. That's how she subjected herself to him. That's how she was submissive to him. That was expressed, among other ways, by her obedience. This word carries with it the, the action of listening. Not just listening, but Listening attentively. It's like when the, the Lord said, hear, O Israel, right? He wasn't just saying, you know, hear, but listen. Listen so as to respond obediently. It's hearing that results in action, godly action. So this is to listen attentively. This word, I think it comes from the Greek, hupakao, means to obey. It uh, comes from the duties of a doorman, someone who keeps the entrance of a building. So in that sense, you see, the woman is able to even guard her husband in this way. So the, so the woman, rather than being a doormat in her submission, is a doorman. She is the one who listens for the knock. She is attentive and vigilant. This obedience is, this word for obedience is also used in Acts chapter 6 verse 7 to describe the obedient response to the preaching of the gospel. That is, the obedience of faith. 1 Timothy 2.9 talks about modesty and reverence. Gets to the same idea. So this is perfectly consistent. So we go through all of these things to stress the fact that being submissive is not something that is debatable or mysterious or unclear. It's very clear. And it is done in a joyful way, a complete way, and I would say a respectful or reverent way. Let's go back to this phrase, in the Lord, or as is fitting in the Lord, or unto the Lord. And practically speaking, this is how life works under the authority of God. See, the husband represents God's authority in his household and in his marriage. His authority is not what we would say absolute or despotic, right? He is not free to be a tyrant in his own home. He is not free to be a tyrant or lord over his wife. He is on borrowed authority. And he is to be a steward, a good steward of that authority as he exercises headship over his wife. Yet that headship 
remains. And if there is headship, then there also must be submission. There must be a, a wife who subjects herself willfully under the authority of the man. And so practically speaking, this in the Lord is how life works under the authority of God. And so Christians should see no inherent problem in this design, nor should they see it somehow contradictory to how God reveals Himself in Scripture. And what's, what makes this so key is that we live in an age of just compartmentalizing God's commands. If something offends our sensibilities or just, I don't know, seems to go against the consensus of public opinion, once again, whatever that may mean, then we kind of reject it. Usually by cowardice, we don't want people to think badly of us. We don't want to be rejected in our own social circles. We want to be thought well of. And so when something like this comes up, it is tempting for, it is tempting for women, on one hand, to reject this notion of submission altogether and seek a more egalitarian arrangement within their marriage with all the same privileges, all the same authority, and everything that accompanies it. With that comes a temptation for the man to abdicate, once again, his headship. The man abdicates his, his headship. He is not going to instruct his wife to submit. And why should she if a man acts in such a way? There is very little motivation for her to do so if her husband is not leading. And so we cannot dismiss this on account of its apparent offense toward us. If God has said it, if God has spoken such, then we take it and we obey it and we live according to it. We cannot separate God's commands from His design. Here's another thing to consider when it comes to the duties of submission. It calls once again to the floor the duty of the husband to love his wife. And as your husband treat you like Christ does the church, so you are to submit your husband to your husband as the church is to honor and submit to the Lord. Right. So how do we regard the Lord? That's the question. If we say it's fitting in the Lord or in the Lord, then we have to ask ourselves, well, how do we submit to the Lord? That is what submission is to reflect. Here's some things to keep in mind. How do we regard the Lord? Well, we trust the Lord. So our submission should be trusting. So wives, your submission should be a trusting submission to your husband. If the church is designed to glorify the Lord, wives, your submission should be to the glory of your husband. Remember, you are a glory and a covering to your husband. You are, we talked about this last Lord's Day, the glory of the glory. And you bring honor on the head of your husband. You are a glory to him when you submit. Just as when the church submits to Christ, we bring Him glory, so does the wife glorify her man. Think about abiding. Think about endurance. The church is to abide in Christ. And of course, wives, your submission should be abiding. An abiding submission to your husband. Something that is consistent. Something that is recognizable. And of course, with that, the church sees the authority the inherent authority of our Lord and Savior. And so, this, the wife's submission should be a recognition and a highlight of her husband's headship. And what we see often, because this is a partnership, the, wife, the quality of the wife's submission 
will often be a reflection of the quality of the husband's leadership. Now, there often are cases where the husband totally abdicates. He's a lousy head, but a head he remains, and yet there is he, he is so fortunate to be married to a godly woman who is submissive in all things, who seeks to honor him in any way she can, even if he is disobedient to the Lord, whether that's just consistent disobedience if he's a believer or disobedience expressed by an unbelieving heart. But one often follows the other. But in all this, we see this as a duty. It is, our, it is the responsibility of the woman to submit to her husband. Secondly is this. We call it the dynamic of submission. The dynamic of submission. This one should be, this point should be a little, a little shorter. Um, as Doug Wilson that said that submission is not used to cope with raw power. Remember, the authority that Christ has over His church is not simply raw power, even though He has infinite power and authority. Remember, that authority is expressed through loving His bride. And so, the man is not to be one who shows, who expresses raw, undeniable power over his wife, right? We're not despotic. We're not, we're not tyrants. We are to express that authority with love, with sacrificial giving love. And as Wilson goes on to say, submission and headship is like a dance, not a fist fight. He kind of gives a comical illustration, um, something that is kind of uh, consistent with being a boy or a young man, as we as competitive as we are, to to see to see headship and a headship authority and submission as a competition is to get done dancing and then say to the woman, ha ha, I beat you. I'm a better dancer than you. A dance rather should be something that is, that is beautiful, that is rhythmic. Two people moving together agreeably, lovingly, submissively, harmoniously in godly fashion. And yet, in a dance, there is a leader. And in this dance, between the man and his wife, the man is to be the leader. And as the woman follows him, she becomes a glorious thing to this dance. As we talked about last week, she becomes, in a sense, even more glorious than her husband, but also adds to the glory of her husband. And that's how that dynamic works. We talked about this again, kind of going back to a lot of what we talked about last Lord's Day, this issue of the woman being the glory of the man. Both man and woman are the image of God, but the woman is not the image of the man. The woman is the glory of the husband. In 1 Corinthians 11, for a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of of man, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man, for indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And so we see how glory plays into this issue of submission. That submission is an act of glory. It's a good thing. And we're so prone to think of it as a terrible thing. And yet it is submission that is the means to growth, to Christian maturity. But this glory is not meant to be static. It is meant to grow ever more glorious. Think about what 
Eve lost in the garden after she fell to temptation, after she was deceived. This glory is what Eve lost, and it is recovered in a gospel-centered marriage. You know, this is before the fall, submission was something that was, I think, built into creation. Something natural. It wasn't something difficult. And then after the fall, part of the curse was that the woman's desire would be for her husband. She would naturally try to grasp for that authority. And so submission is a learning process. We don't just wake up one day and be submissive. Wives don't just wake up one day and say, hey, it's a great idea to be submissive to my husband. No, this is learned behavior. It is learned behavior to be submissive to your husbands in a biblical way. But, but the revelation of Scripture is absolutely paramount to this. Again, as Wilson will go on to say, submission is learning to be glorious. And so within that dynamic is a loving husband. A loving husband to his wife. So when we love, what are, when we love our wives well, what are we telling, what are we telling them? That they are lovely. We are telling our wives that they are lovely through our sacrificial love to them. And that, of course, becomes a catalyst for submission. That submission is the result of being loved well. And if a woman knows she's lovely, she's going to act in a lovely way. Think about, think about the church. If the church knows that it is beloved by Christ, then she will act in an honorable way. She will cling to her loveliness. She's not going to binge on nachos and cheap beer. She is going to pursue loveliness. Some of you that really resonates with. I see, I see that hand. But she's going to seek to be lovely. She's going to seek to sustain that loveliness so that she can be a glory to her husband. So the wife has a goal that is parallel to the church's goal. The church desires to be lovely and submissive so that Christ is honored. In the same way, the wife is to be submissive knowing that her husband loves her so that she honors and brings glory to her husband. So there is, so, so when, when outsiders see the wife, there is no question as to what kind of man she is married to. So that's quite a challenge. People should know the kind of man Wives, they should be able to look at you and know the kind of man you are married to. And that is something that works over time. Men, the more you invest in loving your wife sacrificially, laying your life down for her, even putting aside your own interests, so that she may grow into a lovely thing, the more she will grow in a submissive heart to heed your instruction, to live consistently with the loveliness that is given her, so that that is clear. And that is how that dynamic works throughout marriage. Both are meant to grow. A growth in grace, a growth in love, a growth in submission, and a growth in glory. So that's the dynamic. Thirdly, we have this. Thirdly, we have the details of submission. The details of submission. So a lot of questions come up regarding submission. And what I want to do here is explain what submission is not, but also to kind of explain what what it is, what it looks like. So sort of making 
It's not this, but it's this statement. So I want to clarify these side by side. Some, some, some of the research I, I did in studying for this kind of was like, okay, here's what submission, submission isn't. And then later on, well, here's what it actually is. I kind of want to work these two side by side if, if time allows today. Because there is a lot of confusion over what submission actually is. So I want to make some, some corrective statements. And the first is this, and it walks hand in hand with the issue of headship. One of the first things we recognize about headship is that it is inevitable, right? It's not something optional. It is going to happen. The question becomes, what kind of headship is going to be expressed? Men are always the head in their marriage, and that headship will dominate the marriage. But the question is open. What will dominate the marriage? So in the same way, a wife... We talk about submission, but that explains why Paul says in the Lord or as is fitting in the Lord. He is qualifying that statement. We're not talking about unqualified state uh, submission here. The Bible doesn't teach that. It teaches a qualified submission. Submission in the Lord or as the Lord sees fit or submission as the Lord designs. And here's why. Because in that sense, submission is natural. The wife will submit to something. Just as the man will dominate in some fashion, even if he abdicates, if the wife is quote-unquote unsubmissive to her husband, she will submit to something. So if a woman does not obey her husband, does not honor him, it does not make that submission disappear. That means it will be given or rendered to someone or something. And that, of course, can bring catastrophic results on a marriage. The Lord is concerned that the wife submits to the right person, and that is her husband. And one of the amazing things, wives, that that tells you is that you are, you are not bound to submit to every man. Just your man. So submission is contained in that sense. As much as we may complain about, or today, as much as a, t- t- today's modern woman may complain about this evil and sinister patriarchy, when we actually look at the Bible's teaching on what, it me- what, what the rule of fathers means, it's pretty clear. It's a contained reality. It is contained instruction that you are to submit to your husband. Once again, bringing back the your own husband. That is, you are free from having to submit to another man. And of course, that's where infidelity comes in. When a woman submits to another man. That's where autonomy also comes in. I'd say the thing that women submit most to today, if you want to look at it statistically, when they want to be autonomous, is the federal government. There are a lot of benefits to be had for a woman who remains unmarried. There are a lot of benefits to be had if a woman even has children and remains unmarried and cohabitates with the father of her children, and sometimes not the father of her children. And so she learns to be beholden to another entity, whether an individual or a group of federal bureaucrats. She learns submissive, submissiveness to them. So you see what's materializing here. Headship doesn't go away if the man abdicates, and submissiveness does not go away if the woman is disobedient to her husband. But it is not an option. It's inescapable. Even if to another man who is not your husband or to an institution. Here's a second thing. 
Submission is not divisive, but it is unifying, rather. I think sometimes when we look at submission today, at least from an unbelieving worldview, submission is seen as something that will inevitably tear apart the marriage. Why? Because submission is bad. Submission is oppressive. Submission relegates the wife to a second-class citizen, and that's why we have to fight the patriarchy. It's always, it's always the patriarchy. It's always toxic masculinity. Submission is seen as something that will inevitably turn the wife against her husband and vice versa. But we have to remember from where we even get submission. The prime example, right? The prime example of submission is found in the Lord Jesus Christ submitting himself to the will of the Father. In that sense, we say submission is Trinitarian. We get our idea of submission first and foremost from how is it how it's expressed in the Godhead. And as the Father loves the Son, we know that. Jesus said as much. The Father loves the Son. So the Father does not oppress the Son or treat Him with some petty form of tyranny. But the Father loves Him and exalts Him and glorifies Him through His reign and through His work of salvation. And together, the Father and the Son accomplish redemption. And so marriage, via loving headship and submission, is to be a beautiful and wondrous reflection of that. Of that partnership. So it's not divisive, it's unifying. So remember that this is a, this is a teamwork as both the man and his bride carry out their design from God. Nothing will, nothing will unify a marriage like faithful headship and then humble submission. As much as, as much as unbelief tells us to, to pause or to balk at that kind of teaching, we have to trust God's word that it is sufficient, uh, for our marriages. But though they are questioned, they are good things because they are from God. So thirdly, thirdly, submission does not mean women that you are inferior does not imply inferiority at all. Though it implies a ranking under, the man and his bride still have a common goal, and submissiveness shows that you are committed to your husband. We also know that you are not inferior because of what First Peter says. And once again, this is in the way that the family was structured, in the Roman Empire, this is a revolutionary statement that 1 Peter 3 instructs men to treat their wives as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Chapter 3, verse 7. Show her honor. Right? Live with her with knowledge. You have responsibilities. And so where is this nonsense that somehow submission means inferiority of it. You are a second-class citizen. No, you are a fellow heir of the grace of life. A fellow heir. And continuing on in this, Paul instructs the Galatians and the Colossians. Right, He goes on that, that teaching about how there is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor, nor male nor female, barbarian, Scythian. He goes down the line. But all the hostility all the dividing walls between those groups of people that some that, that represented in some cases classes of citizenry were all done away with in Christ. 
All that hostility has been removed. And so you are equal in that regard. That's very clear from Scripture. What does this mean? Is that anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ can then put on Christ, can be united with Christ, can be Abraham's seed, and can be heirs according to the promise. There is so much confusion in some of the words that are used. We talked about helpmeet last Lord's Day. That helpmeet somehow means the help. That you're somehow a slave or a hired hand at the beck and call of your husband. And women, that's not what it means at all. It is a privilege. It is a glory to be your husband's helpmeet. And when you are submissive to him, you model you model the work and ministry of Christ. The service that He rendered to His Father. There is no inferiority in submission. There is equal reckoning. There is equal status before the Lord. So different responsibilities, different rank does not necessitate an understanding of inferiority or being a lesser person. We are all equally saved by God's grace. We are all equally His children. We are, we are all equally members of His body. Which brings us to the next point. Submission is not oppressive, but liberating. There's that word again, the, the big O that we love. It's oppressive. If I'm submitting to my husband, then I must be oppressed and I have to be free of this oppression. But once again, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Right. She was taken out of man. Verse like this immediately dispels any myth that somehow a woman is a man's personal property for him to do with as he pleases. From creation, we recognize that the man and his wife are one flesh. They belong to one another. And as he takes dominion, she helps. And this is a liberating thing. Women aren't liberated by becoming autonomous creatures and avoiding marriage. They are liberated through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is freedom in being able to obey the Lord in being submissive to her husband. And so connected to this is the sixth thing. Submission does not mean passivity or we could say resignation. Like my husband's going to do what he's going to do. That there is actually a partnership. Right? It's not oppressive, but liberating. Not a second class citizen, but equal. Not passive or, res- or resigned, but partnered. Right? Partnered with the work of her husband. We are not led to believe that because a wife is submissive to her husband that somehow she is sitting idly by, disinterested in what he is doing. She's not passive at all. Think of it this way. Should we say that a wife should be passive to her husband's sin and never confront him? Should we say that a wife should be Passive in her wisdom so that she can't identify certain things about her husband or certain things about the household? Is the wife to be passive in her own giftedness and resourcefulness? Or to use her gifts to assist her husband in extending and expanding the kingdom of Christ? It's a partnership. We don't work out our own gifts and resources in isolation. No, we partner together as man and wife, and bear fruit for the kingdom. So gone is this illusion that the wife is always somehow to be barefoot and pregnant. That's submission. 
but rather she is to be a help to her husband and to add to his gifts and that she, that her gifts are tailored to aid her husband in exercising his. And if you don't believe that, go ahead and read Proverbs 31 again. It says the exact same thing. And so with this involvement comes this. So listen to this, women. This is, this will be helpful. So when it comes to this partnership, it means three things at least. One, you're actively joyful in yielding to your husband's headship because your heart trusts him. You acknowledge and promote his leadership. You honor his decisions in that you let him have the final say without complaint, even if that includes him taking some calculated risk. Life is full of risks. Opportunities typically mean risks, and that means trusting. And of course, letting him exercise spiritual leadership over the household. Here's a second thing. You actively support him in being the man that God wants him to be. You acknowledge where growth has taken place. You are patient and forgiving of him where, when you are hurt and wronged. Of course, this is a responsibility for, I, for, for the both of you. But when he wrongs you, there is a temptation to be unsubmissive. Again, there's the, te- the temptation to look for a way out for a right. It's like we do the same thing. We're, we're, we're entering tax season. We look for write-offs, right? Places on the form where, oh, we don't have to pay what's due here. And I think we the wives face the same temptation. Where do I not have to give what is due because my husband is acting in a particular way? And so that's going to take patience and forgiveness and a reinforcing of that submissive role Within the marriage, we understand that your husband is not going to be the paragon of moral perfection. He's going to have his weaknesses. He is going to have his pitfalls. He's going to have his own temptations. And yet, as your husband, you will lean into him and continue supporting him in being the man that God wants him to be as he continues to grow in the Lord. Here's the third thing. That you are actively faithful in keeping your marriage vows. That you give yourself only to Him. That you allow an intimacy to flourish in your marriage to keep His eyes from wandering, His head from imagining, and His heart from second-guessing. You are promoting and sustaining the one-flesh bond that is indispensable to a Christ-exalting marriage. We'll talk more about intimacy down the road, of course. So that means if you're always tired and you always have a headache or act grossed out by Him, He will go to someone who does not. That is the reality that many marriages find themselves in today. And I'm not justifying a sin. Adultery is devastating and harmful. But all the more reason to guard one another against it. Song of Solomon and Proverbs talk about a man being enraptured by the love of his wife. And of course, this assumes that that will be present and promoted and cared for in the marriage. Here's another final one. Based on the world's assessment of submission, submission is often seen as a bad testimony. Got this one from Reforming Marriage. That submission is not a bad testimony. Rather, it is a good testimony toward pagans. If you mark down in Titus 2, Paul, Paul says, teach the young women to love their husbands so that the word of God will not be blasphemed. So what will happen if the women do not love and honor their husbands? The Word of God will be blasphemed. That's a high challenge to you wives out there this morning. Don't be a cause for the very Word of God which you claim to know and love and believe to be blasphemed, to be dishonored because you have succumbed to a worldly view, a pagan view of marriage where you can live autonomously and not submit to your husband. 
Take ownership of Him. Submit to Him. Don't look for loopholes. Rather, look for a way to honor Him. And that brings us to the difficulty. I think we can cap this off today. The difficulty of marriage, which involves a combination of putting aside your own interests and helping your husband. It also means responding to Him when He does wrong. And so the question often comes up, when do you not have to honor your husband? When do you not have to submit to your husband? What kind of behavior is there where you can say, okay, I can't go there? And I think the answer is, is rather simple. On one hand, not submitting to your husband does not necessarily mean that you, you are no longer honoring the office of, of, of the husband. You can honor the office you can esteem the office even if your esteem of him, even if your respect of him is a little low or if it's taken a blow because of his disobedience to the Lord. But you still honor the, his headship. You still honor his headship where he is obeying the Lord. You still subject yourself to him where he is obedient. Of course, that's, that can be really difficult. Right? When you're, you're told to honor your husband, what happens when he is in direct disobedience to the Lord, then at that point, you do not have to obey what he says. I want to make that very clear. Your husband has no right to tell you to sin. Your husband has no right to lead you into sin. And I think there's three categories that are, that are particular to this. One, of course, is sexual sin. There's financial sin. And then there's and then there's the, what we could call theological or spiritual sin. Your husband is required to keep his marriage vow. And we say this because as ridiculous as it sounds, it's, it's very in vogue right now for a man and wife to watch pornography together or to engage in something called swinging. Don't use your imagination too much, but that's exactly what you think it is. But you do not have to go along with your husband when he leads you into sexual sin or financial sin. That is financial ruin. But the Word of God is clear that a husband is to provide food, shelter, clothing for his wife. And if he does not, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And those are, and, and, and let me be clear, wives, that is when you are able to confront your husband. You are a Christian. You have the Word of God implanted in you. You are, it is not unsubmissive to question your husband. It is not unsubmissive to ask him for clarity. It is not unsubmissive even to say, hey, I think this might be a bad idea. It's not unsubmissive to disagree. It's unsubmissive when you actually try to undermine his authority by being rebellious. But to question his judgment is not to be unsubmissive, especially if your husband has problems with sexual fidelity. If he has a problem with pornography, you can confront him. You should confront him. If he's spending money like it's going out of style, I realize some of us can't even help that because of inflation. But if he is, if he is um, engaging in a lifestyle of in, indiscreet, impulsive spending, whether just buying stuff or, you know, gambling in fantasy football or what have you, if he is, if he is losing his ability to give you food, shelter, clothing to you and your children, then that is a time where he is leading you into sin and you do not have to go along with that. Um, and I would say, lest I forget, but that is a point, women, where you go to your church elders and appeal to us and say, here is what is happening. I will say that is also 
not unsubmissive behavior. If your husband is clearly acting the fool, and I think the lines of that can be pretty firmly drawn based on Scripture, you have every right to go and appeal to your church elders and get additional counsel from them and ask them to intervene. And here's the final one, is spiritual sin. That is, the husband is responsible, and I've said this before, ladies, that you you have every right to know what the responsibilities of your husbands are. You have every right to know what Scripture demands of your husband in his exercise of headship. And one of the, the, the huge issues there is his spiritual or theological responsibility toward you. That is, he is called to follow Christ and to lead you in that. He is to be like the Apostle Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. He is not to lead you away from Christ. He is not to act in a way that is to your spiritual detriment. He is called to set a good example. He is called to grow theologically. He is called to grow in the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and lead you in that. And you should know that that is his responsibility and you should be able to hold him accountable to that. You should express a desire for him to disciple you. And yes, it may be difficult, but you are not violating submission if you do that. You have every prerogative to join him in that and to hold him accountable. You do not also join him in this, again, another, another trend today, deconstruction, deconstructionism. Do not join him if he is deconstructing. Do not join him if he is apostatizing away from the faith. And even if he is an unbeliever, just as First Peter instructs us, try to do what it takes to be one, to win him over without a word by your respectful behavior. Even if he's a complete pagan, you can still honor the office. You can still honor the head, his headship wherever he acts consistently with the faith. Respect him and esteem him as he is worthy, as he walks with God. There is a difference there. Some of you may struggle, you may really struggle to respect your husband. Say, I don't respect him, but you can respect the office. And I would say this as a counsel to you. Be careful about letting certain faults taint everything. Beware of letting a particular fault, shortcoming, even maybe a bad habit, maybe even a bad habit that isn't sinful. Beware of allowing that to taint everything that is honorable and redeemable about him. Guys, I'm really going to bat here for you. (laughs) But I think you will find as you commit your heart to submission to your husband, especially if he is a godly man, then the glory of that marriage will shine all the brighter. And that that very submission that mirrors ultimately Christ submitting to the Father will serve to exalt your marriage, will serve to heal your marriage, will serve to protect your marriage from threats, whether they be inside or outside, and that God ultimately will be honored. And sometimes it may take creativity, but as we'll find out next Lord's Day, we have a solid example of this submission and honor and respect. So we are, again, women, you are not flying blind. You have both the Word and you have the examples contained therein. So that is, that is submission, and we will see, that, see an example of that by Sarah as we get into 1 Peter next Lord's Day. So for now, let's commit this to prayer. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank You again uh, for Your love for us. We ask that You would... Uh, 
Help us commit these teachings that uh, you would uh, soften the hearts of each wife in here toward their husband, that they would be that they would be submissive, that they would seek to to honor their husbands. And we know that we know as men that uh, that can that we can be difficult sometimes. It's not always it's not always easy to uh, to show respect and honor and deference to a man who is um, who maybe plays the hypocrite, who uh, struggles with sin, who um, often fails to be the godly man that he should. But Lord, marriage is a, it is a partnership as we've heard. It is a partnership. And I pray that each of us would be faithful to that. And as much as we know that um, submission isn't something that is stylish, it shouldn't matter. It is, it is your instruction. And I pray, God, that every wife in here would see the blessing in that. That submission is a blessing. That submission reflects the work of the Gospel. That submission reflects your heart for your people. And that by faith, uh, they would pursue that. And that by faith, uh, the men in here would continue to strive to love their wives, to be faithful, uh, to be... uh, honorable heads of our families and of our marriages, that we would do so by Your strength and to see the dynamic of that play out, that as we love our wives well, they would submit well. And that the the glory of it that cultivates would be evident and to provide a lasting encouragement for uh, each couple in here. Lord, I lift up even those... Uh, women in here who are not married and yet who desire marriage, as well as the men in here who desire marriage, that you would continue to do a work in their hearts to prepare them. Never know when that day arrives when that special someone comes along and uh, we want them to have hearts that are prepared. So we pray that you continue to do their work and to give them teachable hearts to receive what So in all these things, Lord, so much more we could have covered today, so much more to to talk about, but but all in due time. And so we trust you, uh, Lord, as you instruct us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.